Let us now read together what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 17. There we have God's word summarized as follows. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection he has overcome death so that he could make us share in the righteousness which he had obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power we too are raised up to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. After the sermon, we will sing together from hymn 51, the stanzas 2, 3, and 4. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, we live in a society that has quite a distorted view about life and death. On the one hand, modern man will spare no expense in order to maintain life. Billions of dollars are being spent on health care, which will allow the use of the latest technology and the best doctors. As a result, life expectancy has steadily increased in this country and the rest of Western society. You would think, therefore, that modern man loves life. Mankind will do anything to prolong it and to maintain it. He will even spare the lives of the most vicious killers by refusing to administer the death penalty. And this is all done because life, so they say, is so very precious. On the other hand, we note that this society does not value life at all. Tens of thousands of abortions are being performed every year in hospitals all over this country. The same doctors who fight for the lives of newborn babies with their ultra-modern equipment and skills are the same doctors who will snuff out the life of a baby not yet born. This society is also moving more and more towards active euthanasia the putting to death of those whose lives are deemed no longer worth living. The world today indeed has a distorted view of life and death. How did this modern society come to such a warped idea about life and death? Well, brothers and sisters, no doubt that has come about because modern man does not believe in the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. For if you do not embrace that biblical truth, then you deny the triumph of Christ over death. And then the resurrection of Christ escapes you, and the benefits, so beautifully summarized here in this Lord's Days, do not apply to you either. That is why it is so important that we continue to confess that truth together with the Church of all ages. I will preach to you God's word this afternoon as we confess it in Lord's Day 17. It is about the importance of Christ's resurrection. We will see two things. First, that it really happened. Secondly, that it has great benefits. 
As I said, the doctrine about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is a very important element in the life of a Christian. However, in spite of that, Lord's Day 17 deals with this doctrine in only one question and answer. Why only one question and answer? For the other doctrines about Christ's work for the believers receive much more attention. For example, the next Lord's Day deals with the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ and uses four questions and answer to explain it. And the one after that, dealing with the Lord Jesus at the right hand of God, has three questions and answers. Why does the resurrection not receive such attention? Well, that is because during the time of the Reformation, the time that the Catechism was written, there was little controversy about the resurrection of Christ. That was not the case with respect to some of the other doctrines. Yet do not think that the Catechism does not give the resurrection of the Lord Jesus the complete treatment that it deserves. The Catechism merely assumes that you believe the resurrection of the Lord Jesus to be a historical fact. And that is not too great an assumption to make regarding a believer, is it? But it has not always been so that there was agreement about the resurrection. That was not the case during Paul's time either, nor is that the case today. During Paul's time, the Pharisees professed to believe in the resurrection of the body, and they did so on the basis of the Old Testament teachings. However, such knowledge did not benefit them, for the Pharisees thought that they could receive such a bodily resurrection, that they could receive that through their own righteousness. In other words, they thought that they could earn it. They did not want to accept that such a resurrection is possible only through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so their belief did not benefit them. Same thing is true of the Sadducees. However, the Sadducees were even farther from the truth, for they did not believe in the resurrection at all. In Acts 23, we see that Paul exploits that difference between the two groups For Paul says to the council of the Jews after he was arrested, My brothers, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. He tried to exploit the differences between the two groups and to draw draw attention to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus in this way and for them to come to the right doctrine. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were not the only ones at that time who denied the resurrection of the body. We also read that there were those who infiltrated the Christian church and that they did not believe in the resurrection either. We read about that in 2 Timothy 2 verse 18 where Paul mentions the names of Hymenaeus and Philetus. These men said that the resurrection was past already. They maintain that you should not look forward to the resurrection of the body. That is something that has already happened. In a sense, of course, that was true if they were talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. For that was true concerning him. Christ had at that time indeed risen from the dead. And he had ascended into heaven and he took his rightful place beside the Father. But that's not what these men referred to. They did not deny that Christ rose from the dead. They didn't dare. They were members of the church, 
and lived at the time when the witnesses to the resurrected body of Christ were still alive. But what they did deny was the reality of the future resurrection, bodily resurrection of the believer. They said that their resurrection was past already. How could they say that? Well, they maintained that the resurrection only meant their own spiritual renewal, nothing else. In this way, they spiritualized the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, as far as the renewal of man is concerned, they were not wrong either. That is always the problem with heretics. They make it all sound so scriptural and nice. There is some truth to what they say. And that is why they're also so dangerous, for you have to really be on your guard in order to be able to refute them. Especially when it comes to the essentials of faith, it is important for you to have the right doctrine or else you lose your comfort, else your faith is not properly anchored in the truth. It cannot be anchored in half-truths. The truth in these heretics' teaching is that Christ's resurrection doesn't mean the renewal, does mean the renewal of our spiritual life. That's also what we confess in Lord's Day 17. By his power, we too are raised up to a new life. Based, for example, on Romans 6 verse 4, where it says that Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so that we too have a new life. But that's all they believed. They did not have any place for the resurrection of the body. Why? Why did they spiritualize the resurrection, or emphasize only that one aspect of it. Well, these members were active members of the church. They had great zeal, and they wanted to bring as many people as possible into the church. But their zeal was misguided. For they thought that in order to attract more people, that they had to subtract from the word of God. For what did Hymenaeus and Philetus do? Well, they embellished God's word a little by taking out some of the more difficult doctrines, especially concerning the resurrection. For you see, at that time, the doctrine of the resurrection was not a popular doctrine. At that time, the philosophy of the Gnostics started to be developed. Not that the average citizen of that day was sitting around all day reading philosophy books to see what the latest trend was. No, a lot of them may never even have heard that that philosophy of Gnosticism existed. They may hardly even have heard that word mentioned. Yet their thinking was very much influenced by that pagan philosophy. And what was that philosophy? Well, the Gnostics, in expanding on the philosophy of Plato believed in an absolute dualism of body and soul and of matter and spirit. They made that distinction so that they could downplay the one and elevate the other. That's what they did then with regard to the body and the spirit. They downplayed the body and overemphasized the spirit. In other words, they saw the body as something negative. The body, in their way of thinking, hinders the work of the soul. To them, everything that is material, including the body, is evil. Only spiritual things, 
and the contemplation of the spiritual things can help you achieve the ultimate purpose for which man came on earth. According to them, only in that way can man find true happiness and his true fulfillment. But that's not what the, te- what the scriptures teach. Nevertheless, Hymenaeus and Philetus wanted to be in tuned, in tune with the world of that day. They wanted the Christian religion to be a little bit more appealing to the people around them. And they did that because they wanted to get as many converts as possible. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, that's always a danger, also today. It's man's inclination to want to add or detract from God's word, and so as to make God's word more acceptable or more reasonable to others. We think that we have to dress it up a little. And that's why in some modern churches they bring in bands and they tell jokes from the pulpit. Well, we don't need to do any of that. On the contrary. Nevertheless, we are also prone to embellish God's word and to follow the philosophers of this age, even though we may not know them or their philosophies by name. It is true that we must make God's word attractive, but only if you do it in accordance with the truth of the scriptures. We may not add from it or distract from it. God's word must always be central, also in a worship service. For the Lord God wants us to be obedient to him. That is to say, we must live the truth and we must also confess the truth. The one cannot go without the other. Throughout the history of the church, we see men trying to compromise with worldly thinking. They want to be in tune, at least to a certain extent, with the rest of the world. Let's not be too different. Let's see how we can maintain the teaching of the Bible without offending the great thinkers of this world. The evolutionists, for example. But do you know what that leads to? It leads to the denial of the truth of the resurrection. You see that throughout history. In some of the Reformed churches, there are now so-called Reformed scholars who deny, who actually deny the resurrection of the body. And there are also those who deny the historicity of the first Adam. But if you do that, then you will eventually end up having to deny the historicity of the second Adam, Christ For if the first Adam did not really live, then it must also be denied that he did not fall into sin and that we did not sin in him. And if that is so, then the second Adam, Christ, is not needed. For then there would be no need for the deliverance from sin. And then there would be no need for the resurrection either. You see, once you take away the foundation of your faith, and then your faith becomes like a house of cards and it all collapses it becomes a ruin and then Satan has you exactly where he wants you but now listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 13 and following he says if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised and if Christ has not been raised Our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. 
But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Strong words, important words. We are dealing with a very important doctrine here. And this certainly applies to all those who deny the resurrection, including the modern theologians of the day who teach that the resurrection is not a historical event or who teach that Adam is not an historical man. You see, those modern theologians, they say that the church made a lot of this all up. They claim that the early church slowly developed a certain tradition around the life of the Lord Jesus. And eventually the early church even started to believe their own stories about Christ. And they say, well, that's how it became to be written down. And they wrote, wrote down their own stories, which we now know as the Bible. And now these modern theologians are the ones who will, as they call it, demythologize the Bible. That is to say, they will take the myths out of it. They will take out all the extra baggage in the Bible and reduce it to its bare elements with the so-called fabricated stories gone. After all, in this world of today, we can't believe in miraculous events anymore. Man is now a rational human being, and he has come of age, and who is now totally tied to reality. He has to be guided by science. How blind they are. For they want to tie their own existence only to that which they themselves can experience within their own pathetic little world. And above all, they deny the true reality. They deny the true reality of Jesus Christ, of his death on the cross, and of his resurrection. But, brothers and sisters, Paul says to Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, good news, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Timothy is to hold on to that reality. Timothy is to preach that reality because that is the great hope that he can give to the people. And you and I, we are to hold on to that reality as well. For the resurrection did happen. It's a fact. It's a historical fact. And now the Lord Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And that is the wonderful comfort that you and I as believers may have. He rules now because he has risen. And in the end we will also rule with him because of our own glorious resurrection. We come to the second point. Catechism mentions that the second benefit of the resurrection is that we too are raised up to a new life. And that of course refers to our regeneration by the Holy Spirit. The scriptures speak about a twofold death and a twofold life. For we can be either spiritually alive or spiritually dead. 
And also we can be either physically alive or physically dead. And so a person could be physically alive while being spiritually dead. That's why Christ at one time said to one of his disciples, let the dead bury their own dead. He was speaking, of course, about people who were physically alive, but who at the same time were spiritually dead. The Pharisees, who did not repent, were spiritually dead. And therefore, they ultimately did not exist in the eyes of God either, for they had rejected him. They only existed for themselves. They were looking for an earthly reward. They wanted to be regarded by men as being important. They wanted to get out of this life as much that they could, and they were looking for the praise of man. The reason why the bodily resurrection would not benefit them was because they did not know about the spiritual resurrection. And you see, the one is impossible without the other. You have to be born again. We just read it even in the form for the baptism of infants when Jonathan Peter was baptized. And that is why the Lord Jesus said to Nicodemus that the only way that he could enter the kingdom of God was to be born anew. That's another word of to be regenerated. In other words, he had to go from death to life. He had to be resurrected. For note well that the scriptures speak about two resurrections. That's clear from what it says in Revelation 20, verse 4 through 6. There the apostle John writes, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Thus far from Revelation. When the Apostle John writes here about the first resurrection, then he writes about those who have been made alive in Christ while they were still living on earth. They had not worshipped the beast or its image. In other words, they are the ones who have been reborn, regenerated, born again. They are those who heard the word of God and who believed and God rose them up from their spiritual deadness. The first resurrection refers to the resurrection of lost sinners to eternal life. They have gone from spiritual death to spiritual life. They have become alive again. And they have become alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. John speaks about the same thing in his gospel. In chapter 5, verse 24, he says, I tell you the truth, who, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed from death to life. Do you see, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, teenagers, young people, the great news about the resurrection of Christ 
For when we speak about the resurrection, we speak about a lot more than the resurrection of the body. We speak first of all about the life that we have with Christ. And so the resurrection of Christ has its effect long before we go to the grave. You and I, we are resurrected now already by the Holy Spirit. If you believe, we already have eternal life. And that is something which no one can take away from us. No matter what may happen to us in this life. That is the great benefit of the resurrection of the body for of those who believe. And there is also a third benefit which the catechism refers to. But that comes after the first resurrection. For the first resurrection assures the believer of his second resurrection. Namely, the restoration of the physical body when you will receive a spiritual body. The Bible says that Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits remind of the first fruits of the harvests, of the harvest, of the oats, the grain, the potatoes. Some of you may have dug out some of your fruit already in the garden if you grow a garden. I know we have, and you see the first fruit, you know what's coming. Well, in the same way as Christ, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, the scriptures say. In other words, there's a lot more to come. He was the first one whose body was sown into the ground and who came out of the ground again with a totally renewed body. After him, there will be lots more. The harvest will be plenty. And how do we know? We know because through faith we may be assured that Christ has overcome death. He has won the victory over death and over Satan. And that, brothers and sisters, is not just some abstract doctrine. That's not just something that you say is not all that important. No, it's extremely important. It is something that we are told in the Bible. That's what you and I confess. It applies to you and me personally. But such benefits only accrue to you if you believe. And when you believe, that means you must have an active faith. faith. And therefore ask yourself, have I experienced the first resurrection? Am I a new creature in Christ? Does the Holy Spirit dwell in my heart? Or do I resist God's spirit? Do I do and think whatever I want, whenever I want? How do you know? Well, you know, the way that you live. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, there's also another resurrection. Namely, the resurrection of condemnation. Listen to what the Apostle John says in John 5, verse 28 and 29. He says... Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. And those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. For not only will the believer experience the resurrection of the body, but also the unbeliever. All of mankind will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But for the believer, he will already know his sentence. 
the wonderful for him, the wonderful thing for him or for her is that he or she knows that he will be declared innocent on the basis of the blood of Christ. For we are all sinners. And that through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he or she will receive glorified bodies nevertheless because it is through Christ who forgives you your sins if you believe in him. But that is not the case with those who did not prepare themselves for that final day. That is not for those who reject God's witness as shown in the Bible and in his word. They will indeed receive resurrected bodies but not glorified bodies. And the Lord will visit his wrath on them in their unglorified bodies. Bodies that were used for a sin will suffer the consequences of that sin. It is an eternal punishment. And the suffering will be degraded for those who have been brought up to know the truth and who have then rejected it. The scriptures also make that perfectly clear. And therefore we as believers should not be confused about the true meaning of life and death. A believer knows that there is more than just this life here on earth. God grants eternal life to those who believe. And eternal damnation to those who don't. And the Lord has revealed that to us for our comfort. Modern man puts his hope in what he can get out of this world. He hopes in winning the lottery. He hopes to be able to spend whatever he can to indulge in his own passions. And that's why modern man treats life in such an arbitrary way. They don't want the lives of others to affect their quality of life. And that's why they abort babies. And that's why they want to be rid of sick old people or of those with, with handicaps as soon as they can. And so they plead for active euthanasia. But if you've got their own lives, they will do everything to preserve it. But in so doing, they have given up on real life. Brothers and sisters, we put our hope in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He rose so that we can live, so that we can have eternal life. And live that eternal life with renewed bodies here on a totally renewed earth. That is the great hope we have. And so brothers and sisters, let us lead lives of thankfulness. And together live out of that hope. Let us together as God's people look forward to the coming of Christ. And prepare ourselves for his coming. What a wonderful day that will be. Amen.